Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 49 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates, and I've got a cool opportunity today. I've got an entirely new guest, someone who I've actually wanted as a guest for a long time, only recently connected to make it happen. This is uh, Dr. Quinn Hennick, and you might know Quinn uh, as a longtime contributor to Juggernaut uh, Strength, among other things. But uh, Quinn is a doctor of physical therapy. I'm going to make sure I read this off so I don't miss anything here. You actually describe yourself as a physio, coach, educator, and student, and you're now the head of athlete rehab at Clinical Athlete in Orange County. What have I missed? That's a great start. Hopefully, hopefully the most boring part of the uh, of the show. And I appreciate you for having me on, Andrew. This is this is uh, super exciting, and I'm honored to be on. Uh, no, I appreciate having you on here too. And I'm kind of hoping that we can capture, because I mean, I do throw these up on YouTube, but most people listen to the audio. Hopefully we can capture some of your goofy energy when you're mucking around on your Instagram videos, right? Your IGTV stuff, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, you know, keep it fun, especially when you're doing things by yourself. You want the the listeners to feel like you still have a connection, even though you're just sitting in your kitchen recording something. Uh, so it's always fun. We've got to find a way to bring quality evidence-based information to the mainstream and cut through the noise, which is always the challenge, right? Very much so, especially, I, I shouldn't say especially, but you see it in the nutrition space and the, in the training space. I see it in the, in the healthcare rehab space. So uh, lots, of, lots of searching for signal through the noise and the, it, the world seems to be getting noisier, but maybe that's just because I'm getting older. I kind of like that searching through signal. <laughs> I got to write that down. So what are the, re the things I actually love asking about, especially I've talked similar concepts with Dr. John Russin, my friend, Dr. Sam Spinelli, uh, and those guys are big presences in the fitness industry, but they're doctors of physical, physical therapy. Now, John is quick to point out these never actually practiced physical therapies always function as a strength coach. And Sam is definitely in dual roles. Uh, and then Tim DeFrancesco is another one, uh, doctor of physical therapy, who I'm actually chatting with recently. We've got a project in the works together. But what made going into that educational fitness space, you know, as an educator, uh, speaking to not just athletes, but I think a more general audience versus taking a career in physical therapy into a more you know, clinical setting? And I guess you still do function that to a certain extent. So why that direction? Uh, yeah, I mean, gosh, it's a, it's a big question. Um, I started as a strength conditioning coach. I mean, that's what I originally went to school for and, uh, and did for the first couple of years of, of my career. And I just kind of personally felt that I still wanted to work in the performance and health and, and fitness space, but I wanted to broaden my scope a little bit. I wanted to, um, you know, I felt, I felt a little limited in my knowledge. I could write a program. I felt like I could teach movements and, and push people along in that regard. But as far as injury or rehab and just in general, kind of the, the psychological nature of being human, uh, especially in terms of pain and, and that experience as it's very complex, as I've learned over the few years, I just felt like that was limited. And I, I wanted to expand, uh, you know, professionally too, you know, as a, like, like you mentioned with your previous guests, having that DPT kind of expands your opportunities. Cause you can always go back and, and work, 
um, you know, in a performance setting, but now you've kind of broadened your knowledge base and, and some of your scope. So that's why I went back to PT school. Not that I wanted to necessarily have this big shift in who I worked with or the environments that I worked with, but it was just more uh, to learn more, honestly, to just kind of continue to master the craft, so to speak. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go to a $200,000 doctorate program by any stretch of the imagination. And physical therapy school by itself doesn't really prepare you for any one environment. There's no, they, they tell you that from day one, they're going to train you to be generalists. So you're coming into school, trying to think better, trying to, uh, create your reasoning skills or, or, um, hone your reasoning skills, create processes and, or even just understand how much you don't know. I mean, that for me, I, I went into PT school with a huge ego thinking I knew everything about <laughs> everything and then came out of it, uh, humbled to say the least. And, and that's kind of continuing to this day. Uh, but I think it was a good route for me to just kind of understand, um, the, the, the big picture, I guess. And, um, now got into kind of got into teaching just right out of school, um, with juggernaut, as you mentioned, kind of that connection, writing blogs, doing videos. It was kind of just like, yeah, sure. I'll do that. But it was, it was kind of performance based. So I felt comfortable with it. And then as I actually learned more and actually practiced as a physical therapist, then I started to feel more comfortable kind of teaching that side of things. But what I've learned is doing and working off of your interpretation of best evidence and your intuition and the person's beliefs and expectations in front of you doing that yourself, you kind of find this intuitive process, but then when you try to teach other people, how you, you can't just teach other people, how your what's in your head, that's not explicit that you haven't actually gotten gone down and said, what is my process? How, why do I make these decisions? And if you've never really asked yourself that, it's very difficult to teach anything um, because you just say, ah, oh, it's just kind of in your gut. Well, I read, read a bunch of stuff and I've just, this is how I feel. Um, and I wasn't comfortable teaching that way. And so now over the past several years, I've really gone back and, and said, what do I take from best evidence? Um, and how do I integrate that with my intuitions as a professional and the patient or, or athletes beliefs and expectations in front of me. So it's just been an evolution. I mean, had you asked me five years ago, if I was doing the things I'd be doing now in terms of, of teaching or professionally, I would have said, I don't think so. I, you know, and then you asked me where I'm going to be in five years and I have no idea. So it just kind of builds on itself. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Cause obviously I forgot the original question. Uh -huh. No, well, I was going to say one thing. It reminds me of something that uh, Dean Somerset has said before. He said it in an old article on imposter syndrome. That is, every step of the way through his career, as he first started training clients, as he st first started filming his courses or even doing his courses, then selling them as info products on his uh, on his website, he didn't know what he was doing. And if, you know, and I've got to believe you're familiar with a guy like Dean, yeah, certainly Edmonton as well, and you know, he's established a pretty solid career base. I mean, he's the, I like to say about Dean, he's a better, he's, he's not a physical therapist. He actually isn't, but he's a better physical therapist than most physical therapists are out there in terms of well, just the quality of knowledge he has. Yeah. And that's kind of the deal. Like aside from the legal scope 
and that's just obviously that gets weird and and gray and it's just kind of a never-ending debate but so i want to throw that aside but the title of the professional seems a bit arbitrary when the human in front of you has the same physiology whether my title is physical therapist trainer coach chiropractor athletic trainer whatever the the principles that we that we make decisions off of and and our kind of processes should be kind of rooted across these these legal titles so you know dean and i and i know dean he's a great guy but if i didn't know dean at all and and he's not a a physical therapist by title or license we should still be able to have a conversation about the underlying principles um of of physiology of the biopsychosocial you know uh phenomenon and the tactics that we use may vary from license and scope and professional to professional and and hell even you know uh, I have my biases towards certain tactics of exercises and ways of programming versus a physical therapist that I would respect right next to me, just because we come up through different channels and we learn different things first, you know, but we come to the same end, hopefully, because the principles that our tactics are, are set upon are, uh, you know, ex expand beyond. I guess you know, people often talk about scope of practice and I know that there's some very hard lines of scope and there's a lot of soft ones. And I think there are people who think, Ooh, the lines are blurred and, and maybe people in the physical therapy community get mad at personal trainers for playing at physical therapist. But, and, and of course we have the trainers who do one corrective exercise coach uh, course and all of a sudden think that they know everything about that too. But it is really you know, a group of educators, and I consider you among them, a lot of the other names I said, uh, who have brought a lot more of these concepts into the fitness industry and gotten personal trainers more comfortable with them. Because as you pointed out, it's, yes, there are definitely some hard lines. For example, trainers should not be doing manual therapy or manipulating joints or dry needling clients. It's just some very explicit examples, unless they literally have gone to school to do that stuff. But outside of that, you know, there's a lot of overlap between, you know, getting someone stronger and making pain go away and rehabilitating things. So there's a lot that personal trainers are within scope of doing as long as they actually know what the fuck they're doing and make the client better. Yeah. And, and you cut out a little bit there, Andrew, can you, can you say the, the end of the question there for me? Oh, sorry. I'll try to reframe that as well. I guess it, what really matters is just that the, the work that's done with a client at the end of the day to make the cl client feel stronger and better. Now, as I said, there are certain elements of scope of practice that trainers really do have to adhere to. And, you know, you get clients or trainers getting on the floor and manipulating clients' joints. Like that, that's a no-no. Like trainers are not qualified to do that stuff. You hearing me clearly? I, I am. Good. Awesome. So I, I'm not sure what the question is there. It's just, it's, you can sort of take that and run with it a little bit as to your thoughts. Yeah. You know, the, the, the interventions that we use, uh, performing a surgery on someone, a lot of these are skills, are tactical skills that could be learned with enough exposure and repetition by anyone. Dry needling is a very imperfect 
whatever it is. I was going to say imperfect science, but I actually don't want to slap that term on it. Just, just all that quickly. Um, if I, if I paid a few thousand dollars and went to a, a weekend certification and then practice dry needling, I would get better at it. That's not special to being a physical therapist. That just means I'm allowed to even try to do it. I, where I think having gone through physical therapy school and having invested all that time and money, not because of what I learned, I think the value is you weed out the people who aren't willing to continue in that difficult process and money aside, a trainer invests their time and, and money and, and into their clients um, through their experiences and through their continuing education. And I think those things are important in that it, it represents somebody who's, who cares and who has gone through the effort. So we could, I'll just, you know, a very tangible example and polarizing example for some could be the CSCS certification. And we may agree that the CS, you don't come out of the CSCS certification as an all-star strength coach, but my argument will be, I now have a representation of at least this person put a minimum amount of effort into this area. You can't, somebody off the street is not going to pass that test. You have to have studied enough and learned enough. Now, will you forget a lot of it? Well, that's on you. If you don't use it and brush up on it. Um, yeah. And I forgot a lot of what I don't use in physical therapy school. That's just kind of the nature of it. But so my point is with, with scope, it's kind of separating the, the skills and tactics that you're legally or not legally allowed to learn that everybody could learn. I could learn how to perform a surgery if I practiced enough. I'm just, nobody's legally going to allow me to practice enough because I haven't paid those dues. I didn't go to med school. Um, but it's not that I don't have that skill potentially if I had as many hours as a, re as a surgical resident. So it is more for me about reasoning. So the reason that I would have difficulty referring somebody who I really want to get to have a really, really trusted professional working with them, why I would hesitate sending that person to a, a trainer who's only had one weekend certification. And this is literally their first week on the job is the reasoning aspect of things, because everything when you're new is short term, you got blinders on, you're just thinking about the next minute. What am I going to do now? Oh, I'll do this exercise because everybody does squats. So I'll do this exercise. And you're not, you're, you don't have a process and you're not really thinking long-term because you don't have any long-term experience. You don't have no idea. You can't predict any of these things because you haven't seen any patterns yet. Um, and over time, those patterns start to emerge and you, and you can start to develop your processes of why you pick certain dosages or certain exercises, or like you always say, Hey, calories in and calories out. is a great principle, but there's actually different ways to do that than just starving people or just eating less. So you're miserable. And then your performance sucks. There's actually other ways to get that same principle, but without all the cost. And could I learn that as somebody who's not have any certifications or nutritionist license or a dietitian's license, I should say, of course I can, but the dietitian has invested time and money that they have to learn those things or hopefully. And so this is where titles to me matter because at least it tells me where they have shifted their bias and focus specifically where others could have, I can put, you could put three years 
in of studying all of the things that I learned in physical therapy school. But why would you do that? Unless you've, <laughs> unless you've decided to invest in that's where school kind of like almost it, it force feeds you in um, a beneficial way because you're, you're, you're going to go that route when you've invested that much. Um, and so scope, I just assume people are going to practice within their legal scope. Um, I think that's an, just an obvious conversation. Know where those boundaries are uh, for the safety of you and your clients. But then when we start talking about not knowledge scope, I think is where the conversation starts to get interesting. That's cool. I hope everybody listening can kind of pull something from that one, at least in terms of philosophical stuff. I want to plug, I want to pull at something else too here. Um, one of the things I had planned and I mentioned sort of, if anybody doesn't yet follow you, I always want, I'm careful who I choose as my guests now, even more than, you know, before. So if I've got someone on here, it's, it's a tacit endorsement of, Hey, go follow their social media. And in particular, go into your, your IG videos or your IGTV videos. Cause they're fun. They're goofy, right? Like I said, so you've obviously built a strong reputation and you built a strong following in the industry. Um, and I know a lot of that ties in with professional, you're making a sort of face like you'd <laughs> goofy argue that, but you know, you have that great reputation. Um, you have a lot of professional relationships that I mentioned, of course, juggernaut being one of them, Chad Wesley Smith and Max Aida. And I know Mike Isertel has, you know, had a relationship with those guys in the past, but are there any critical steps, attitudes, choices that put you in the position you're in? Now, I know we already talked about one of the key ones, which was, in fact, going to school. But is there anything else that's really fundamental to where your career is now? And perhaps mm. if there's any wisdom that you can then turn around and share with, with coaches? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think this may be some recency bias because I... I've been talking about this a lot, but um, showing your work early and often. And what I mean by that is it could be anything. It could be writing every day. Um, now, social media, again, tactics, what that actually means. And back in the day, it could have meant a blog. Uh, it could have meant um, doing some type of audio recording. Every time you drive to work, you just put your thoughts out there. Um, but for me right now, showing your work means um, regularly making up case studies that from, of the athletes that I see and then posting those cases in our forums and just saying, this is what I did with this person. This is what we're doing. This is where we want to go. Here's my thought process with no... And I always, I always qualify it with, I'm not the arbiter of this stuff. This is just what I did. There are probably many means to the same end and probably better means. And I, and one of the reasons that I think showing your work is so powerful is because the feedback that you receive, you will learn so much by putting your, by putting your thought processes out there to get criticized and constructively, you know, if somebody's obviously attacking you personally, that's a whole completely different conversation, but putting yourself out there, putting your thought processes out there, not in a, Hey, I know things and I'm a guru. If you don't, if you don't number one and number two, not in a way that you're not actually looking to learn, but that has helped me tremendously. And every, I still, and I'm uncomfortable because I know there's going to be, I'm curious why you chose this and that. 
And there's going to be things that I don't have great answers to. It's going to be some things are just going to be, you know what, that's just, it's arbitrary. And I chose sets of six instead of sets of eight, because maybe I didn't have my coffee that day. You know, like who knows, but it's what it does is it creates conversations and people start to reach out to you and they start, you start having dialogues with people. Um, and I, I just think it's extremely powerful for your own learning and your own thought, thought process. And when you start to have a little bit of your own voice and start to create your own thinking and thought processes, you're more confident in networking and, and reaching out to those that maybe you thought were just so far beyond you in their practice, maybe in the same field, you just don't even feel comfortable making that connection at all. Um, you don't feel like you can sit at the table, which a lot of times you absolutely can, and there's no table anyway, but you just have that sense. So one, one, so that's, that's kind of one of my first recommendations is just find a way to put your thought processes out there. Um, and maybe that's Instagram <laughs> and I choose Instagram live because I want to spend for me, it's minimal viable product. I want to spend as little time on the production side of things as possible. And putting my thoughts out there is as much for me as it is for anybody else, because IG lives don't get all that much traction. They're long videos and, you know, nobody watches all the way through, but I even just talking through those things, I identify holes in my reasoning as I'm talking. I'm like, oh, I'm not able really to explain this. And I'll jot that idea down and I'll dig into it a little bit. And, and so I'll learn from that and try to kind of fill that hole a little bit. Um, and I think, I think social media is now everybody's got a blog. If you've got an Instagram account, you've got a blog, um, vlog or whatever it is. So I just think, I think that's really, really helpful. Now, if you don't want to put it out to the public, have a journal, but, but show someone, have a circle. You know, I've got text threads as well of various colleagues um, who, you know, and we talk about various things, but those are people who I'll say, Hey, I'll throw this idea out there. I'll throw this um, kind of presentation or mental model that I've created for a certain thing and rehab or performance. I'll say, what do you think about this? Poke holes in it. And they'll give me, you know, honest feedback. So just, doing that over time and iterating through your ideas over time doesn't seem like a way to get to make connections or to like make your way up the ladder in your field, but it, it just, it, it really, really is. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there that I love all throughout it. You just described something that I always call developing career capital. So you're talking about writing blogs, articles, I mean, social media is a piece of a puzzle. And yes, people can now just create a brand on social media. You can grow following. But how many people will come into your social media and go, cool, I like what this, I like this guy's post. I like this. What else is there? Oh, there's no podcast. There's no written articles. There's no website. There's no YouTube. There's no, oh, they're not a gym owner. They don't own a physical facility. Oh, they don't, they're not a part of an online business. I like Mike Isertel as a good example. I mean, shit, how much YouTube stuff has Mike ever done there? You know, Mike, like, I don't think Mike has ever hosted a podcast of his own, but he sure as hell appears on a hell of a lot of them. You know, they have Renaissance periodization, which is a very big respected entity in the industry. He has a PhD. Education is a piece of career capital. It's a really, really big one. And he's 
you know, RP, they go around all over the place. I've gone to several of them. Uh, they're educational seminars in person, right? He's a presenter, public speaker. So you have this big, big library of stuff that I would look at as career capital. You don't have to do all that stuff, but you got to start somewhere, like you said. And I like to point people to what, what's the thing that you probably would be the most confident or competent with? Are you a good writer? You want to be a good writer. Are you good on video? There's where you're, there's your starting point. You can certainly do both if you have the bandwidth. And I really like something you said in there too. I hope people picked up on both the humility in what you said, but also the fact that someone with your level of education, there's not a, you know, for this particular ailment, this is the prescription and it's a firm set established thing. It's you. And I mentioned Sam Spinelli. So Sam's a good friend, love his stuff. You and Sam might very well, you've alluded to this, have the same person in front of you, the same thing and prescribe two different approaches, which will probably have the same result or very, very similar result in making that person feel better, get stronger. And neither one of you is quote right or wrong. There's no one prescription for most of these things. It's like, okay, we want to get stronger. You tell me right now what exercise will make someone better at their squat and develop pure strength. Is there one specific thing that will work for every single person, exact rep range, exact option for squatting, exact periodization training protocol? No, there's not even close. I'm guessing if you got into Chad Wesley Smith stuff or stuff you've done, or stuff Mike has written or Sam has written, and you would find very, very similar underlying themes and basic fundamental principles of getting people stronger, but you would see different programs, different exercise selection, and slightly different even rep ranges at times. That's, that's also why it's so difficult to wrap your mind around those things and to accept that as a, in, in the health and, and rehabs, especially rehab. So I love physical therapy. I think it's, it's just awesome, unique opportunity to just kind of blend all the things that I'm interested in, which is strength and conditioning and psychology and, and tissue adaptation and all of these things. But it's also this weird, we can't really do, if, you, if a fly was on the wall in my office, you would say, oh, he's like a strength and conditioning coach. Because I, I personally don't do a lot of, of modalities and some of these other interventions, again, our tactics, I, I, for me, it's opportunity cost of what I choose. We have a finite amount of time that I have with this person. And so I'm going to choose the things that I feel provide the most bang for buck. That's a debatable thing right there is what would those things be? My bias is exercise and loading. Go it's ahead. also the populations you're working with. If you're working 100%. with athletes versus say an older adult who's rehabilitating them, and uh, ACL reconstruction or, or a knee replacement. And, well, and I would even say we could be working with the same population and somebody could be on the table for the entire hour with passive modalities and, and, and I may not. So there's, there's a lot of variability in our profession, which is, it's one of, it's awesome to have that type of freedom, but it's one of the downsides and the confusing aspects of, of the public when they're just bombarded with, you know, treatment pro approaches on all from the polarized ends of the continuum. Um, but that's why if you can anchor yourself to some of these principles, if, if we can at least start with their goals, the person in front of you, what is meaningful to them? What are the meaningful activities that they're trying to get back to? Can me as professional or professional at least agree on that? Cause that's not our, 
it's not our ideas that's coming from them. So let's try to agree on that. Okay. Let's reverse engineer from there. I may feel that a certain amount or certain uh, variations of activities or a certain way to grade those activities kind of reverse engineering from where they want to be is a, an approach that's going to give us the most bang for buck. Somebody else might feel differently. Those are tactics, but if we can say, okay, well, what are our key performance indicators? What are our KPIs? What are the things that let us know that the needle is moving? And, and if we can then maybe establish common ground there, then you can plug your tactics in, I can plug my tactics in, and then we can go from there. So it's kind of figuring out the, the checkpoints and the touch points where we can have common ground within processes. And then what goes between those checkpoints is, is where some of the variability can lie. Um, but if, if you're not taking into account kind of the end, what does done mean? What does success actually mean for this person? What does that look like? Then a lot of times what you'll find is the person walks in and they just get every treatment under the sun it's kind of throw crap at the wall and see what sticks for that day and rinse repeat until your insurance benefits run out. And then at the end of this process, they're not, they don't have any tools to self-manage. They haven't really moved the needle. It's just been this kind of like, you know, just treading the same line, holding the line of, of up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, and with pain, it is, pain is a really complex phenomenon and it's completely personal to the experience of the person. And a lot of times for me, defining what done means for the person, this is kind of a mutual um, conversation that I'll have with them, mutual decision. What does done mean? A lot of times done doesn't mean, hey, I'm pain-free. The issue that I came to see you with is no longer here and it's never gonna happen again. Yeah. That's not reality for a lot of the stuff. If you've come in with certain, uh, with certain pain experiences for the past several years, your time with me is likely going to be a drop in the bucket from an exposure standpoint, but hopefully on the back end of it, you have kind of a new frame of reference for how to, how to deal with the issue. And it's not unmanageable anymore. Um, it's maybe a thing that you have that pops up every now and then, but you know how to deal with it. It's not affecting your meaningful activities in a way that you're not able to progress. You can still progress the things that you want and, and live and train the way that you want. Um, it's just, it may be something that's part of the part of the ride every now and then, as opposed to when you first came in, it was the thing that was keeping you from doing the meaningful activities. And we've just kind of reframed it. Um, so once again, forgot the original, uh, original question, but you've done more, back than, to you. more than well with it. I want to okay. piggyback off the last thing you said. And basically what you're saying is that physical therapists are not magicians. And I suspect very strongly a lot of people go into, into PT thinking, well, this person is going to fix my issue. Pain is going to be gone. And I'm going to go about my day pretty quickly. And that's analogous to the same thing. When people want to lose weight, they're like, all right, well, I'm going to go hire a trainer. I got to go on a diet after this amount of time, I'll feel great. I'll be happy. And I can go back to my life the way it used to be. And it sounds to me, and, you know, I keep going back to, you know, friends of mine, like Sam Spinelli, who's very big on getting people stronger and educating them. So that way there's actual change in their life. It sounds to me like you equip the people you work with, with the skills and tools to be able to go forward and avoid those problems in the future. That's the goal. Um, I'm we're guides or how I kind of frame my, myself as kind of a guide through the process, 
not the dictator of the process and, and not the seer. Um, as we know with, with training and just health and fitness and, and just a, a biological complex system, they are unpredictable. The pain experience is just another um, variable that is also itself very unpredictable. So we'll throw that now back in, into already a complex system and, and um, predicting outcomes, predicting timelines, we're very poor at that, save for the, you know, ankles, the, the acute uh, tissue rupture with which we have kind of siloed those tissues healing constraints. Um, but even then, you know, in six weeks, I have a decent idea of, of where you're going to be if, if this is your first ankle sprain. Um, but I still could be wrong. And if this is your 10th ankle sprain, I honestly have no clue where we're going to be in six weeks. And if this has been going on for six years, that's why I think I come back to checkpoints. How can we define success for this person? So you are unable to do these movements. You can do these movements that are all meaningful to you, but this is the bucket of movements that you can't do. This is currently where what you can do, but not nearly as the way that you would want to, or as often or as much. And these are the movements that are just fine, but are maybe not your meaningful movements. And so we try to see where our entry point to these exercises are with the kind of the end in mind. And then we have checkpoints. I can say in six weeks, six weeks is enough time at least to show or reflect improvement. And improvement could be you're doing more of your meaningful activities, just a, a, a greater bolus, a greater dosage of them. Some of those movements that were on the no-go list have now shifted to the I can do, but very carefully list, which is improvement. Maybe you're able to do the same amount of the movement or the same uh, variation of the movement, but much more comfortably. So there's, a, there's various ways that we can measure success, but it's never just be pain-free because that doesn't define anything and pain is too, too unpredictable to pr promise somebody that they're not going to experience pain in their life. Uh, especially if they've been dealing with something that's, that's been off and on and chronic. Um, but we can give people this kind of process oriented mindset rather than this stopping and ending point. Do I want everybody that comes in to see me for some type of physical rehab to have an abrupt endpoint? as in you're now no longer experiencing the thing that you came in here with and you never will again. Does that happen? It does happen. Is it, can I promise that? Never. <laughs> and so, and, and yeah, go ahead. I was going to say what a lot of what you just described also applies for personal trainers as well in terms of the triage of what people can and can't do now. We're not yeah. treating injury and pain in the same fashion that a PT would be. Um, and when I say the word PT, I actually mean physical therapist like you did. People hear PT, personal yeah, therapist, PT, physical therapist, right? So yeah, yeah. PT, physical therapist. But, you know, simple example, you've got a client comes in in front of you and they've got some anterior knee issues and walking lunges kind of are a no-go with them. But you already know about the knee history, so maybe you don't even worry about the walking lunges. But a reverse lunge or a Bulgarian squat or something like that with a vertical shin is fine. We're making those same kind of decisions. We're just doing it on a more superficial level. But that's a very, that's a very big part of the decision-making matrix of developing a program for clients. Do 
high bar squats feel great, but low bar squats, oh shit, that's really, really rough on the elbows. Don't tolerate those very well. Cool. Well, you're not a strength athlete. Well, cool. We don't really need the low bar squat. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of parallels, just finding entry points to loads, lateralizations, regressions, what you're What's the plan B in your back pocket that you always have in case this particular activity is a no-go? What's the next step up? You know, if they're starting to graduate, I think, again, my, my physical therapy training only be because I've gotten so much practice now over the past 10 years of navigating the pain experience, helping the person navigate the pain experience for the person. I've kind of been able to develop these mental models of when the pain matters to the extent of if we go into it, we're going to, we're going to, um, backpedal a little bit. It's going to work against us, or we actually need to move into this a little bit and start to grade your exposure and start to kind of expose you to what you've been so avoidant for, for if we want to move the needle forward. So it's, that's where it's been super, super valuable to, to have the experience of a physical therapist for me, at least is, helping the person kind of make sense of the experience and just kind of reducing some of the uncertainty because I keep going, I keep going back to pain because it's, it's the thing that gets people that puts people in my door. Um, They don't have another way of describing it. They just are having now this different experience in their environment that they weren't having before. And their ability to navigate the environment is different than it was and it's not getting better and there's uncertainty there. And so they're seeking somebody's guidance. Um, now, if you've gotten into, if you tore your Achilles, your foot doesn't work anymore, you know? So there's some obvious ones too, whether it hurts or not, if your Achilles torn, uh, there's going to be some limitations in your ability to function for a while. So that's, that's a, one of these, um, situations where, you know, pain or pain, not, uh, it's, we're, we're talking about tissue adaptation, but if it's anterior knee pain, if it's tendinopathy, uh, quote unquote, jumper's knee that you see where a lot of times, you know, if you image, if you, if you take every, uh, NBA basketball player and, and you MRI their patellar tendon, some, something where 30 to 50% of them are going to have tendinopathic changes on that ultrasound or MRI, um, whether or not they have symptoms, some of them could be asymptomatic for their entire life but this image shows quote unquote pathology. Now that pathology may increase the probability or the risk of them on average, but it doesn't mean it's not a one-to-one. So my point there being when, when people experience pain, many times they're equating that with tissue damage. And that's not always the case. I mean, we can think of these extreme examples of people who snapped their leg in two and it didn't hurt until they looked down and saw their leg was mangled. And, and so, or until the shock wears off. And so, Pain is, is your, one of your body's responses of, of kind of protection and, um, you know, saving the the biological system, but it's, it's not a one-to-one relationship with damage. And that alone is a really important point to navigate in rehab, because if you've not loaded that tendon that hurts for the past year, because it hurts, well, a tendon's language is load. If we want those tissues to adapt, we have to put mechanical load on those tissues. That's what they do. And so there's this paradox of load being both the poison and the antidote. And it's kind of, that's where I come in and, and, and we work together to try to find the right quote unquote dosage, so to speak. But 
many times our plan consists of your symptoms, feeling your thing. I'll say like, we're probably going to have to feel your thing a little bit to move the needle forward. Now we just got to find that sweet spot. And the difference between that and what you have been doing is what you have been doing is this kind of all or nothing cycle, this feast or famine cycle where you go in there, you go ham, your thing flares up and then you do nothing. And then you pull way back. And then next time you go into the gym, your capacity is even lower. And so you feel your thing with even less. And it's just, just negative feedback loop, which is really, really frustrating. I call it, um, I got this from somebody and I can't remember who it was, but it's been so long. I call it a uh, rehab purgatory where you're just stuck in this endless cycle of rehab, 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 and your ceiling is just getting lower and lower and lower. So what we're going to have to find is, is a, a, a plan that levels out those spikes and, per, and we have to lengthen the progression line a little bit, but the end is still the same. Um, and we're going to have our ups and downs, but we don't want them to be as extreme as what you've been. So if you have a flare up, we might have to pull back, but we only pull back enough with enough dosage and enough of the, of the movements so that we can move forward again. It's not pull everything back. And those subtle differences are the difference. Um, in, in many cases, and it's just consistency over time, like training, like nutrition. Yeah. Um, I mean, fundamentally, you know, I, I've been on this kick a lot with my media, but you know, as we get older, right, like if we do not build in some form of resistance training. I, I recently put it as it's got to be part of your retirement plan. I want people to think in those terms, because if you're not putting stress on these tissues, joint, muscle, bone, they will degenerate. And as we get older, if they're not very strong, there's a very, very big relationship between mortality, um, you know, broken bones, major, major injuries and early death with not having a lot of muscle mass and having weak bones. And it's harder. There's that old adage where the best way to get in shape is to never get out of shape. But it, it just seems like the older you get, the more difficult it is and the longer it takes to drum up that momentum in the positive direction to really like get, get things going and be able to progressively overload, um, get out of this kind of training to train, uh, you know, phase or this, this rehab phase and actually be able to kind of move the needle forward over time. It just seems like that, that timeline stretches a little bit. And so you have to even be more diligent with your consistency and how, I mean, how much harder is that when we get older, when, we just have seemingly have more, our life just gets more complicated. So is it this combination of our bodies losing the ability to, to, to recover a bit, needing, um, needing more time to actually create these adaptations. And on top of that, having more stress and just more complications in life that are taking time away from some of those more, some of those other habits that we, we could help solidify. So there's just there's a ton of factors that go into this and that's part of the job too, is helping the person navigate those factors. So they don't feel like they have to flip their entire world upside down, but you know, we start habit stacking. What's the one or two things that we can start now. That's not going to put a huge dent into your life. It's not going to add more stress to you, but we'll start to get things going in the right direction. And we kind of agree on what those big rocks will be and, and go from there. I think you just alluded to something. Um, within that about if someone is inactive for a really long time, you know, we have this belief that 
well, recently there's been some research on how the belief that your metabolism slows as you age. Well, there's some really good research that kind of counters that. I've mm -hmm. always believed, and now we have evidence to support this, that it was far more due to lifestyle as we get older than it was about the fact that we get older itself. Now, I believe, and you would be much more attuned to the evidence on this one, I believe there are recovery factors as we get older when it comes to maintaining physical strength, muscle mass, all that stuff. I've got to believe there is. But I suspect very strongly that there's a big relationship between just years of not using it being a major thing here. And I think the most important thing, the, the surface level thing here is to counter that belief. So people don't get into this thing. Well, I'm too old. It's too mm. late to start. So if we can at least not hang on this belief, however, or whatever the role of being older makes it harder physiologically is, I don't want to have people believing that it's the only thing. And therefore there's no point in even trying. Absolutely. That is a difficult thing to get across as well. Um, habit, I mean, habit change, but just behavior change, you know, is, is kind of what we're talking about. And when somebody doesn't know you from Adam on day one, and this is, this has been their life and they've in their, their beliefs for a very, very long time, um, getting, you know, turning that ship around. And, uh, like you just said, even if it's just a mindset shift, like, Hey, I'm still, I'm still alive here. I, I'm still uh, an adaptable system. There can be changes to be had here. Um, even that is a, is a process to get somebody to buy into that. And, you know, it can start in the clinic with just surprising them or the gym and just surprising them with something that they didn't think they could do or haven't done for years. And that's where being the quote unquote expert in how to kind of manipulate constraints in, in terms of exercise prescription, set people up for success, be it how you actually set up an exercise or, or um, even if it's just letting them play a little bit in kind of a, in a, in a safe way, you know, if it's a, I'm throwing out a arbitrary example here, but if it's a rack pull and you put that bar above their knees and you don't actually care what they look like pulling that bar off the rack, you just want them to do it. And you say, look, that's 45 pounds right there. You know, you said you couldn't carry your groceries in and you say, you want to throw some, you throw those tens on there. What do you think about that? And you know, who knows, maybe you work up to a 95 pound rack pull that day. And, and you just got to violate those negative expectations and beliefs that have people have put on themselves. And you not only have to do it once, but you have to do it again and again and again. And when they start to see that change, then they start to believe. And, and so it's this positive feedback loop now. And, you know, that's a lot of, we say get stronger. I just want to get, you know, can't go wrong, getting strong, just load it sometimes we fall into these, into these arbitrary buckets. You know, I can be as biased as exercise with exercise as somebody can be with manual therapy or dry needling or cupping or whatever. And I can throw these narratives on exercise as well. Well, you're just not strong enough. You're experiencing this thing because you're not strong. Well, what does that mean exactly? I mean, cause we could be real pedantic and, and say, well, how are you defining strength? How are you measuring strength? Is there some type of threshold where they can deadlift 
a certain amount of weight, all of a sudden this issue is not going to be there. And so when we throw these terms around, I think sometimes we are guilty of the same thing that we are when we criticize other, uh, other aspects, but there's something with the process of continuously violating somebody's expectation, con continuously exposing them to something that was seemingly difficult or more than they th actually thought they were capable of, um, exposing them to the things that they were scared of over time. And strength training is just a really resistant. I'm going to start calling it resistance training from now on. Resistance training is just a really great way to do that. Um, and it's fun and I happen to like it and, and I've got the equipment. <laughs> so, you know, so let's do, so let's go. Um, if I was, if I was really scared of spiders and for some reason I wanted to get not scared of spiders, well, what would I do? I would put the thing in a jar and put it, you know, 20 feet away across the room and I'd keep that jar lid on tight. And how would I, you know, grade my exposure to that thing? I'd bring the jar a little closer and closer and I'd loosen up the lid a little bit. And before you know it, you know, it's crawling in my hair and we're best friends, but tissue adaptation adaptations aside, resistance training is, is just a really nice way to get people to start to realize that they are adaptable and that there are, there's some good that can happen here. There's something very tangible about it, very measurable. And people can easily experience wins. I think mm. one of my favorite approaches to any client, I've always said this, I don't care if it's a weight loss client or rehabilitation client, or they want to put on muscle mass or they say, Hey, I want to get stronger. I always start with a foundation of strength. And if they're getting those early new clients always are getting personal bests every week over week over week. And some people can always, you can always find something that they're doing a little bit better than before. And it's one of the things that fuels them, gets them excited and wants them to come back the next week. And after a little while, they look back and go, wait a second, I've been doing this for five months and it's a habit. And if mm. it's a weight loss client, especially, well, all of a sudden they've been doing this for five months and they realize, well, I didn't really like go too crazy with like diet interventions, but I'm down 15 pounds because I just found myself wanting to eat better. And I just like strength training as an underpinning of everything. And I certainly think it extends into, you know, uh, pain and injury um, because you mentioned tissue remodeling. I mean, people thinking that, you know, what's a good example, like a foam roller. I mean, yeah, sure. Foam roller will relax neural tone for a short enough period of time. And maybe you'll get some more range of motion into a movement. Awesome. can be really useful. It just feels better. Great. Awesome. But if anybody thinks that a foam roller is going to fucking break up scar tissue, they're crazy because if our body was fragile enough that a foam roller could remodel tissue, we would be so fucking fragile that we couldn't do anything. Yeah. We always say you'd have permanent dents in your upper traps if you did back squats, if that were the case and the plausibility of it as well, I won't go into foam rolling, but it's like, how can something break up? the quote unquote bad stuff, but somehow spare the skin and the nerves and the muscle. So, you know, you just start kind of asking these questions to people. And, and I, I, there was like, I had like a three year rampage on foam rolling. It was just a tirade and uh, foam rolling is one thing, but it kind of segues into a, a conversation of you don't have to try to impose your biases on everybody. If it's not actually, if it doesn't actually matter. So now we'll have conversations about adjunct treatments if I feel that there's an opportunity cost, and I've said that term more than once, but what I mean by that is if this person is spending half an hour foam rolling and band distracting every joint in their body, and then they only have 20 minutes to actually get training in the things that are probably going to move the needle. Now there's a problem because that 
their expectations and their kind of frame of reference for these things is getting in the way of, of some other things. And so then we start to have that conversation, but if they're just like, yeah, you know, I don't know what it does, but I just kind of, like you said, just kind of like the way it feels. And I just throw it in there in the beginning of the end. I'm like, cool. Like, I don't care. Um, or p- people know when they come to see me, they're not going to lay on my table and get, and, you know, get a rub down, but they ask me still, well, what do you think about massage? I say, go to a masseuse because they're probably way better at it than I am. And you're free to spend your time and your money, however you want. Just don't let that time. Don't go get a massage during the time that you were supposed to get our work in. And but otherwise there's really no, there's no cost. If you like it personally for me, I happen to not enjoy it. So I, I don't like a stranger digging their knuckles and, and elbows into my body. So it's not even that relaxing kind of like recovery state thing for me. It's like stressful. It just adds more stress to it. It's like a time now I have to schedule it and all that stuff. So that's me. And that's personal choice for me. For other people, we just have that conversation, whether it's foam rolling or, or anything. Um, and, you know, we should think of examples in nutrition and, and, and whatever else. So the big thing is what's really going to move the needle? What are my biases as a professional? And do I need to inject those onto this person? Is that going to matter? Uh, a lot of times the answer is no. Sometimes yes. We're going to leave off there because I have a client walking in the door in a couple of minutes. But no, that's cool. But uh, I hope everybody listening can kind of see, wait a second, Quinn's got a lot of really intellectual, thoughtful stuff. So I hope that they will turn around if they're not already following your work, they'll dive into it a bit more. So go check out your Instagram. How do people find you? Yeah, Instagram's great, quinn.hennickdpt. Uh, my email is on the profile. Just click the email button, quinn at clinicalathlete.com and follow Clinical Athlete and, and uh, our free Facebook group, Calu, C-A-L-U community on Facebook. It's awesome. We do events all the time, journal clubs, case studies. Um, there's just great discussions and networking that goes on there all the time. So I think those are, those are, your, uh, those are great options. Beautiful. As always, I really appreciate everybody who has stayed and tuned in and enjoys these episodes. If you're somebody who's brand new to what, uh, to my podcast, you found me through Quinn's work or his media, then, you know, I've mentioned some names like Dr. Sam Spinelli and Tim DeFrancesco and Mike Isertel, and they've all been guests on the podcast. So scroll through the inventory of the last, you know, I said episode number 49, but there's 150 episodes under the old format also in the downloads with everybody from, again, Mike Isretel to Dr. John Berardi. So really proud of that library. Dive into it. Uh, shoot me a message on Instagram if you haven't yet connected with me. And uh, Quinn, I really appreciate that you take the time to come on. I appreciate you, Andrew. Thank you so much.